and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're having a, another big conversation about the state of the world order, in fact the liberal world order. We have just released a report which I co-wrote with Anthony Dworkin, asking the question, can Europe save the world order, looking at uh, the state of uh, the liberal world order in different situations. And obviously, many of you will have listened to our End of the World podcast series, but really happy today to be talking to the the doyen of uh, theorists of uh, international liberal order. Well, I don't know about that. I'm happy to be here, but... uh... Professor John Eikenbury, um, who has written uh, many books and articles about the idea of the liberal order, um, starting with, uh, I think, the, the seminal work, uh, Liberal Leviathan. Um, so, John, you uh, have been writing about the liberal world order for many, many years now, um, during the triumphant periods where it seemed to be taking all before it, and now, um, during this period where there seem to be uh, many fears about it disintegrating. Where, where do you think we're at in terms of the liberal order? Well, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, we, uh, I've been studying uh, liberal international order for, for several decades, and uh, with each succeeding year it seems to be uh, getting worse, so perhaps I should stop studying it. it it's not uh, moving in the direction that many people thought it would after uh, the Cold War ended. Um, I think uh, it's both good news and bad news. We, we have, over the last several decades, seen the, the collapse, really, with the end of the Cold War of all the great alternative types of orders, imperial orders and regional blocs, and uh, the world was really left with this order that was really created by the Europeans and the Americans after World War II, and it was a Western or Atlantic order. It had lots of countries. It was the center of the world in many ways, and it it, it spread outward. And uh, so the success was that it became a, a kind of fr- platform for for much of the rest of the world to make transit transitions, democratic and market transitions. But uh, that success, in many ways, that internationalization or even globalization of the liberal order, has led to all sorts of dysfunctions and a kind of thinning out of what it is and uh, backlashes. Uh, It's been seen as a kind of neoliberal agenda for globalization of capitalism and uh, it's now uh, quite quite, uh, politically unpopular and and, uh, we're at this point where um, uh, first questions have to be asked yet again. What what kind of international order do we want? What? How do we sustain openness? How do we sustain rule of law? How do democracies build a, a, a world for themselves so that so that their fragile uh, republican institutions uh, can survive? That's a, a question as old as politics, perhaps, uh, but it's a question that's uh, on the agenda yet again. And what do you? Because th- you know, you've basically been charting some of the challenges both. From the outside, the rise of authoritarian capitalist powers that are not necessarily particularly liberal in terms of how they organise their domestic politics. Um, and after the financial crisis, obviously China has started to become more and more active and engaged on the world stage. Russia 
has played this sort of revanchist role. Now, you know, they're yeah. joined by Turkey um, under Erdogan, um, Modi in India. Um, so a lot of the, the great powers seem to be heading in a, in a less liberal direction. Uh, but at the same time, there is this sort of counter-revolution yeah. in the West um, with Trump as the most visible expression of it, but um, not the only one, as, uh, <laughs> as <laughs> we, we kind of know. Which of these things do you think is more profound as a challenge to the international liberal order? I think that you know, that actually the the challenges coming from within are more profound and indeed more surprising. Uh, uh, I think that... Uh, in, in some ways, uh, we probably overestimated the capacity of liberals, let's say in the West, liberal internationalists, that uh, the capacity of states such as China and, and uh, Russia to make transitions. Uh, it, 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 we, we perhaps were too optimistic that institutions are malleable and that the attractions of liberal democracy would overcome uh, deeper, uh, deeper uh, sources of tradition and uh, Approaches to politics, so so that's true. But at, in some sense, more surprising is the uh, re- decline of of faith in democracy among young people in Europe and in the United States. The the um, uh, sense that 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 uh, democracy is not delivering on its promise. Uh, the countries are more unequal, stagnant incomes. Uh, sense that, that they aren't delivering uh, in the way that, that uh, everyone promised uh, they would, and that the next generation of, of, of citizens and in, in democracies would have a better life than the last uh, generation. All of that has led, I think, to a, 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 a crisis uh, from within that, uh, that is, is more profound than uh, what China is going to do or what Russia is going to do. But do you, do you not think that it's part of the same story? If you bring, you know, two billion extra or three billion extra workers into the economy, it's obviously going to have a downward pressure on wages and on conditions in the in the established world, and also yeah. is going to um, pose some questions about the rules which are set. Because if you have these countries that are there. We had a, I had an interview uh, during this End of the World series with Pankaj Mishra, who basically Mishra, says yeah. that the liberal order is just code for the white kind of imperial... Uh, I wish you were here. I'd have a good, <laughs> uh, good argument with him. <laughs> but he's, yeah, yeah, but he's right in the sense that uh, there, there's no question. There's a, there is an economic dimension to this. And as I was suggesting, there's a kind of ironic twist in that uh, the spread of, of markets, the spread of the liberal international order, if you will, has led to, to downward uh, pressure in the West on wages. There's been a, a internationalization of the labor market. Uh, um, there's the, the, the real winners in the last 20, 25 years have been the, the, the workers, uh, entry-level workers in the global labor market in India and, and China. And, uh, and, and there's a, a, in the West, the, the old constituencies, the middle class, the working class in Europe and the United States, those folks who have, were the, the shareholders, if you will, in the liberal international order are now uh, seeing that their shares aren't, aren't uh, gaining any value and, and uh, the rest of the world seems to be uh, pulling ahead of them. And to what extent um, do you think... Pankaj Mishra is right that the, uh, the liberal order is in fact just an imperial order 
it was uh, imposed by uh, the, the kind of imperial powers, the UK, the US, and that therefore <clears throat> when the relative power of uh, these old imperial forces wanes, it's natural that the, the, the rules which they were championing should be challenged in different places. I, I I don't buy that narrative. It, it, it's, it's a kind of overly simplistic uh, argument about about empire as a kind of global uh, phenomenon. Uh, it, it, the, the West it, it, and it essentializes the Western experience, which has itself been a struggle inside of Europe and uh, the United States and and beyond. Uh, uh, for for uh, types of order that have been imperial and liberal, uh, liberalism and liberal internationalism has made uh, uh, peace with and affiliated itself with imperialism in the 19th century and the early 20th century, and certainly British liberals in the age of Woodrow Wilson and in the age of the the, the 1940s. Uh, both uh, supported free trade and multilateral institutions, but supported the continuation of empire, certainly British empire, and defended empire even as they attacked uh, imperialism. So there's been a lot of, of, of complexity in how Western uh, stakeholders in the system have thought about uh, empire. But it's also been uh, ideas, the liberal tradition, liberal internationalism has been a, a source of inspiration, a set of ideas that have sought to to overturn empire, uh, and and uh, the struggle for self determination is is rooted in ideas that go back to Versailles and uh, uh, the efforts to to uh, find some alternative to empire. And by the end of the 20th century, the world was rid had rid itself rid itself of empire. Um, 190 sovereign states each claiming authority over its own territory. Uh, that is a story uh, of a hundred-year struggle to move from a world of empire to a world of nation-states. And the, the West and the liberal tradition within it has been integral to, for that struggle. So Mishra is wrong, I think, on that. And uh, but, Yeah. I mean, I mean, it would be interesting to, to unpack that a bit more. Like when we were talking ye- yesterday, um, you said that... Um, that nationalism and internationalism are called twins, <laughs> and that yep. in, in a way one is the product of the other. That internationalism is built on the basis of, of, of nation states, because um, what you're describing in the in the kind of post-imperial uh, period is of uh, this kind of mushrooming of nation states everywhere, and an end to the kind of old idea of of one world and of internationalism, which you had under the uh, British Empire when you had a kind of single trading system which was um, uh, but the I, I suppose the Mishra idea is it just carries on right. in another form and that the ultimate form of, of imperialism is decolonization where right. countries well, uh, I just find that uh, intellectually too uh, too clever uh, um, and there is a across the academy and uh, sort of intellectual debate about uh, world politics there 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 are grand traditions which see which see empire everywhere but it misses uh, struggles for uh, for self-expression for self-determination for 
national liberation, and uh, that that has been um, a, a, a struggle that has taken place uh, inside of 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 a world where where um, you have earnest types who want to see uh, democracy, rule of law, um, a, a system of of of, of independent uh, peoples that have voice over their own affairs. So there there is there's there's anti-imperialism. I think that is part of the story of the rise and spread of liberal internationalism and it, it's it's not simply a guise for more imperialism it's it, it truly is an attempt to to find uh, find a kind of post-imperial world politics so can you explain a bit more what you meant when you said that nationalism and internationalism are, are twins yeah I think that's important as we think about what comes next in world politics but in the 19th century uh, Nationalism, as I think our great historians tell us, uh, is is not something that comes organically out of the organization of people or civilizations. It's constructed. It was, uh, in part, a, a story, as, as Ernest Gellner would argue, a manifestation of industrialization, the creating of societies that were part of the industrialization uh, drama, and uh, a, a people uh, was con- were constructed, uh, nation states, and the connection of nation and state uh, is is truly a, a modern phenomenon. And in the building of nation states, uh, the, the kind of containers for liberal democracy in Europe and elsewhere, um, out of that process, those countries have 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 had international agendas. They had civil societies that were. Uh, interdependent with those in other countries, and the, the internationalism that emerged in the 19th century, trade, um, uh, uh, jurists supporting arbitration and, and the building of international law, um, social movements, anti-slavery, um, uh, internationalism of all different sorts that came out of societies, and of course the kind of more traditional diplomatic internationalism of building out uh, frameworks for democracy coming out of the Napoleonic era and Versailles, uh, excuse me, uh, and the Vienna settlement. All of this uh, created a kind of internationalism that connected nationalism to to uh, to uh, frameworks for multilateral cooperation. And so nationalism and internationalism came together. You needed one for the other. And today, when we think about nationalism, we often see it as the the opposite, as a kind of retraction or reaction against uh, internationalism. But those who want to re-articulate and uh, um, re-legitimate the internationalist projects that, again, we can trace back to the 19th century, need to remember that they were, in some sense, the handmaiden of building world, the world around nation states. And so uh, internationalism has been most robust uh, as a force in world history when it has been tied to strengthening the ability of nation states to do what they want to do. Um, and that insight, I would argue, is important as we try to uh, fashion a an internationalism after the crisis, a new liberal internationalism, if you will, that will um, be seen as as connecting people who who are worried about their well-being to to the international system. So 
So you think we need to have an internationalism that's more respectful of, of national sovereignty? I think I think it, they they're exactly that in a kind of enlightened way, uh, not as a uh, blood and soil uh, identity dynamic, uh, but as a, 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 a as a as a framework that the international system is in part creating infrastructure and a milieu for for people to. Um, Build national projects, uh, economic and political, that can allow them to advance and see these kind of progressive movements that have been so important in the past. So, um, how optimistic are you that that's possible? Because at the moment, you know, the the siren call of a lot of the nationalist movements is about taking back control, um, and it's more about taking a wrecking ball to international institutions than about subtly reforming them in order to create a bit more policy space for for enlightened uh, internationalist governments? Well, um, I, I, I'm, I actually um, am, in my own work, in my public intellectual work, in my scholarly work, I, I, I'm optimistic I, I'm optimistic not about the future not because I, I it's a prediction of what will happen but it's kind of my way of living my life that <laughs> I'm inclined to to see the brighter side and to look for sources of movement uh, that uh, that might uh, surprise us in the uh, in an upside sort of way and um, I, what how do I mean one of the the ways in which that I, I think about about what comes next and how we might, See movements that that are not simply uh, capitulation to to these dark forces of protectionism, of territorial revisionism, um, uh, old kind of imperial logics. Uh, I I go back to fundamentals, and and uh, the the modern world is built on a kind of ongoing process of of of, of interdependence. The, the the world is. Is, 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 is moving in great leaps, even cascades of interdependence, economic interdependence, security-related, environmental. Uh, scientists now have given us a new uh, name for our, our geologic era, the andro- androth- Anthropocene. Uh, and Anthropocene. Um, I'm going to learn to pronounce that eventually. <laughs> um, uh, and so I think that, that the the sheer kind of complexity and interdependence of the modern world means that there are few alternatives to um, a, a liberal international way of life. Uh, actors working together, building forms of cooperation. Uh, you can't be safe in this uh, growing, com- growingly complex world alone. You can only be safe together. So the logic of Composing our differences, looking for ways to to uh, uh, to, to uh, find solutions to um, global warming, to uh, weapons proliferation, to uh, the, the the inherent instability of markets. All of this moves us towards uh, reinventing um, a kind of liberalism that allows us to survive the storms of modernity. And um, how worrying do you think Trump is for the for this world? I mean, from what you were saying at the beginning, it sounds like you see him more of a, as a symptom than as a cause of what's going on in in the world. But how much damage can one man do to the, 
<laughs> international yeah. liberalism. Well, it's a, a wrecking ball. I think you used that term earlier. I think there is a, a there is a quality of uh, to his presence that is, is is it's it's a destructive presence, and to some extent that's that's relevant to to our conversation because he doesn't really have a model. There is not a, a Trumpian. Uh, approach to the world that that solves problems that people care about. Uh, it's it's more of a of a destabilizing presence that requires us to rethink what we want to do and to to counterattack with our more more uh, constructive proposals. So I think he he can do a lot of damage, but after Trump, there will always need to be something, and uh, uh, he will not usher in a, a new world. He will simply require the rest of us to think about what are the features of the new world. So we have to be prepared. I'm, I'm hopeful that it will only be four years, and, and if, if it is, I do think that, speaking now for those who are thinking about world politics from the American side, I think there is a tremendous energy and just pent up eagerness to to reassert American leadership uh, to 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 rebuild to uh, to to go back to our allies and say we're still here and we don't want to to disrespect you we want to to reconstruct uh, some of the things that we've done and to look at our accomplishments and see what we can do now and there's a, a great hunger on the American side to to reaffirm those values. It's very, very disorienting to have a president who doesn't talk in a natural sort of way about the genius of the founding fathers or the importance of rule of law or democratic institutions or to draw kind of normative or even moral bright lines between the kind of life we want to live and the kind of life that's that's lurking in the shadows. So that's there's a hunger for that and i think there will be leaders that will come forward in our lifetime who will reestablish that kind of moral leadership and with that i think uh we can kind of come claw our way back into a more decent world order i mean that's one of the other tensions that sort of lurks behind your work because you elide um i mean you know deliberately in liberal leviathan and other areas um american primacy um, and um, and the kind of rule-based liberal um, order. Uh, and I suppose for yeah. most of the last few decades, they've been very interdependent. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But what is obviously uh, inevitable is that as the balance of power shifts in the world, these two things will come in tension with each other. And America first, as articulated by... Um, by Donald Trump is is the is probably the choice that a lot of Americans will make if if you have to choose between uh, uh, having liberal rule based uh, values and pursuing American interests. It's not entirely clear that um, when the two become decoupled, uh, that people will not uh, choose to go down the route of becoming a more normal country that pursues its national interest. At the, even if it's at the expense of, uh, of international order and because of America's power, um, it's able to do that. And that, I mean, how does that impact on the idea of moral leadership? Yeah, I think, you know, that's, you've uh, yet again, uh, in, a, in a wonderful way, uh, given us a, a kind of the tension that is that exists in the kind of the heart of the, the post-war system. The U.S. was was both 
doing good and doing well. It was it was uh, providing leadership and 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 tying itself to a rule-based global order with lots of exceptions and privileges and rights and so forth, but also doing uh, well for itself. It was, it was profiting. It was, it was seen as advancing uh, by tying itself to, to its allies in the larger system. I, I still think that's true. Even uh, as the U.S. becomes relatively less powerful, uh, uh, it has an interest in um, indeed, one could argue, an even greater interest as it's material capabilities decline relative to everybody else. Think about the rise of China. It has an interest to be closer, not further away from Europe, to tie itself. And I think some of your work makes this clear as well, namely that um, uh, the, the, if, if China is an illiberal challenge to the liberal international order, uh, it will find itself having to discipline itself and to, uh, to compromise itself and perhaps integrate and uh, become more uh, liberal oriented in its uh, in its in its ways uh, if it faces a more united liberal democratic world, which is to say, a Europe, the United States, and all the other countries that affiliate in that on that basis. And so it's it's just a larger aggregation. So there are strategic interests, there are uh, economic interests, there there are practical interests that uh, augur in favor of the U.S. even as it becomes less dominant to um, to to arrange its affairs uh, with others in the way that we've been talking. Um, I I love to to go back and read um, great classic texts. Uh, that's what I do at Princeton and read and teach. Uh, uh, grand strategy, Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War. Everybody uh, 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 reads that book as a statement of the kind of realist tradition uh, and the, the the Melian dialogue, the most famous passage in Thucydides is a story of the Athenian general telling the people of Milos that uh, they need to surrender or they will be destroyed. They, nobody ever listens to what the people of Milos said to the Athenian general and what they said was relevant to America today. They said, leave aside press questions of justice you, the Athenians, will be seen as a more fair and just, more fair and successful hegemon uh, if you treat weaker people like us fairly. Uh, and, and then the people of Milos went on and said, you, the Athenians, should also remember that at someday, someday you will not be as powerful as you are now, and you will want to have a international order, that's, that's my term, not theirs, that will protect you when you are less powerful than you are today. And for that reason, you should think twice about um, uh, attacking us. And so that, that's 2,500 years ago. That same insight, I think, exists today for the United States. Yeah, well, Bill Clinton said something very similar about, about China, but I'm not sure if Trump has got the Peloponnesian <laughs> memo yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, thank you very much, uh, John. It's been fascinating talking to you. Um, we got one thing left to do on the on the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, um, I I re- review books for foreign affairs, so every two months I get forty books, and so I'm often triaging what what do I want to read and, and what do I want to to review. But uh, 
Tim, uh, Tim Schneider's new book uh, is, is an important book I'm reading now. When I travel, I, I read uh, also not just serious books. I read uh, historical uh, spy fiction. Alan Firth's books are, are great. I always pack one of his in my briefcase. Um, and typically, uh, a book of history or biography. And I've got, uh, uh, from an old used bookstore, I found a, 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 a biography of Richard Cobden, the great 19th century uh, uh, liberal. Free, pro free trade. Free trade. Um, and, and slavery, all that good stuff. So um, I try to have a little bit of this, that, and the other. There's a statue of Richard Cobden around the corner from my house in London. Well, um, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, uh, John. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, we'll put links up to uh, John's books and the other publications that you mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Please do let your friends and family and other acquaintances know about the podcast by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, and above all, by heading straight to iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on and giving us a rating or review. But for now, from John Eikenbury and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch, and our editor is Katerina Botel-Azinaro.